little bit of full disclosure for you this morning. I've wanted to preach this sermon to you for about two years. So you might say, we just, we just waited for Steve and Dan to be out of town so that we could preach this sermon to you. But ultimately, it's actually because we've been waiting for the Last Supper. I've been eager to preach to you about the Last Supper for, for a few particular reasons. It's been, it's been a two-year process, but I haven't been preparing for two years, but the Lord has just been laying a burden in my heart for you as a church that I happily get to be a part of this morning. So we're talking about the Last Supper, but in talking about the Last Supper, my deep desire for you as your brother in Christ is that the Lord's Supper that we'll celebrate later will begin to come alive to you. The reason being is I can attest to the fact that something clicked for me five or so years ago with the Lord's Supper when I heard someone teaching on it. Some, something that completely shifted from this is weird and kind of annoying to this, this might be my favorite part of Sunday mornings. I truly long for us as Sovereign Grace Church Dayton to love who and what we celebrate at the Lord's Supper because it's all about Jesus Christ and the life and death he gave for you who believe in him. I yearn for us to no longer be confused or afraid when we come to the Lord's Supper. I long for us to come before the table overjoyed. I say that because my own soul in years past has been tired of kind of wondering, wondering why we do this thing. Thoughts like this have been familiar. If other people saw this, they'd think I had absolutely lost my mind. Or I know why we do it and that it's somehow important, but you know, why do we do this week after week after week? And those are the kinds of thoughts, if you've ever had some of those, those are the kinds of thoughts that I hope the Holy Spirit dispels with force this morning so that he can replace them with worship and joy over our dead and risen Savior as we take the bread and cup together every week. So that's my, that's my disclosure, and I'm eager to look at Luke 22 with you. After all, like I said, there is no Lord's Supper without the Last Supper. Steve mentioned last week that we're, we're coming to holy ground at this point in Luke, so to speak. We're inching closer to the darkest moments in human history. But those moments don't sneak up on Jesus he knows what's ahead and he's been preparing his disciples for it. So first, it's time for him to celebrate God delivering Israel from Egypt at the Passover hundreds of years prior. And in doing so, Jesus completely reinterprets what kind of lamb will be killed and what kind of Passover is about to happen. So as we watch Jesus at his last meal before his death, I pray that this primary point becomes clear to us. Jesus readily gave his own body and the blood in his veins for you. Simple as, as that may sound, may God breathe life into you with that truth. Jesus readily gave his own body and the blood in his veins for you. That's what Jesus' last meal is all about. He wants to convince us that he came for a reason, he died for a reason, he lived for a reason even, 
and that was to glorify his father by rescuing a people for himself and cleansing them from all unrighteousness. How? By bleeding and being broken for us. We as Christians can never apologize for the offense of the cross, which is the innocent God in flesh, son of man, dying as a bloody sacrifice to satisfy the completely just wrath of God. It was a horrible thing. Lots of people refuse to believe that. But in refusing to believe it, they turn away the beautiful aftermath, which is resurrected and eternal life following that bloody sacrifice. As we go along this morning, see Jesus at the Last Supper saying, this is for you, take it, so that you can also come to his cross, his tomb, his presence in heaven and, the, and eternal life with him on the earth and see him saying, because you took my body and my blood, because you took hold of me in faith, take this resurrection and this eternal life and this glorification also. Jesus readily gave himself for us. Romans 8.32 testifies to this fact that God has held back nothing from you, not even the life and the body of his only son. So a few points this morning and we'll talk about the Lord's Supper after, but first we have to see from Jesus' last meal that Jesus is your Passover lamb. And that might not mean a whole lot right now, but I hope that in the next few minutes it will. Point number one, Jesus is your Passover lamb. At this point in Jesus' journey, he, he's just a few hours away from his destiny, so to speak. He has gone around healing and teaching and proclaiming the kingdom and slowly revealing his identity as the true God in flesh. He has been opposed by Satan, the religious leaders, and even his friend, Judas. Like we saw last week, that opposition is all a part of him accomplishing that task of seeking and saving the lost but it's about to reach a flash point. He says in verse 14, the hour has come. That is the hour starting the Passover meal. But the account in John gives a little bit of insight into Jesus' own awareness of the timing here. John 13, one says this, now before the feast of Passover, which Jesus is about to eat, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So the hour has come and the bell is tolling for things to begin to ramp up towards Jesus' crucifixion when he will die for the sins of the world. He knows this, the hour has come. But we're not there yet. First, there's a celebration at hand. This meal of Passover was anything but somber, this, it wasn't this bleak meal where all you hear is kind of the clinking of dishes and awkward silence among the group. This was a Passover meal and Jesus is here just with the 12 apostles doing what? They're celebrating. They're celebrating the Passover, which was a significant holiday for the Jews and it became a festival for them. Imagine celebrating Christmas except with everyone in the country traveling to the same city to throw a giant party. It was a huge annual ordeal. But why? 
Some of us know the ins and the outs of the Passover, but Luke is begging the question, have you thought about why Jesus died at Passover in Jerusalem right after this meal? Have you considered how biblically and personally significant that is? But before we can ever even hope to answer that, we have to understand that the Passover was this significant event for Jesus in particular as a Jew. So in order to understand that, let me tell you a brief story. Imagine yourself making bricks. Just imagine yourself making clay bricks. Hundreds of clay, clay bricks. Day after day, you're mixing straw and mud and forming them and letting them dry in the blazing Egyptian sun. If your pace is anything but frantic, then you get beaten with a reed whip until you start producing your quota. Imagine what that would be like for you. No matter where you are in your stage of life right now, no matter how able-bodied you feel, imagine that this is your life. Maybe you have your family alongside you doing the same exact thing. You've got enough food for energy to drag yourself back to the brick-making station each morning, and that's about it. And once upon a time, God had promised to your people that he would bless your nation, that you would be his people and he would be your God. But that's starting to sound like a fairy tale. Why? Because you realize that the oldest relative you knew, maybe your great-grandma, was stuck in the same exact slavery and oppression that you and your children are living in right now. So in agony, you and your family and every other Israelite family cries out to God for mercy each day. And finally, finally, he sends a man named Moses to help get the nation out of this place. Then you start to see crazy things start happening flies and gnats and all sorts of swarms of creatures descending on the Egyptians, but not touching you. You see, the, you see the Nile River colored a deep scarlet red because it is turned to blood. All of a sudden, you realize that this could only be God doing this, the God who made a promise before your descendants even entered Egypt over 400 years ago. Needless to say, you are afraid, yet perplexed. In the midst of the sheer confusion in the land, word gets passed around to drop everything, drop the bricks, make preparation. What kind of preparation? Take a lamb without blemish, all of you, the whole nation, and everybody kill your lamb at twilight. Take its blood, spread it on your doorposts and the top part of your door. Eat the meat from that lamb quickly and follow the instructions on how to prepare it. This is the Lord's Passover, says Yahweh. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. 
This is the story of how God saved his people out of Egypt, how his angel of death passed over them and Egypt lost their firstborn sons, leading to Pharaoh releasing the Israelites, which became the celebration of Jewish Passover. For them, it was a retelling of the moment where they escaped certain death from God's judgment by taking refuge underneath the blood of an innocent lamb, which was the means that God provided to spare them and deliver them from the evil that enslaved, enslaved them. There is, there's no overstating how important this moment was for the nation of Israel. In fact, it kind of is what established them as a nation. It was identity forming for them. We are the people whom God delivered out of Egypt. And God says over and over again, remember, I was the one who took you up out of Egypt. It was the defining moment where their God came to rescue them and forcefully took them out of Pharaoh's clutch and eventually brought them to the promised land where he would live with them in the temple. So important was it that God instituted it basically as a New Year's holiday. On the 14th day of the first month of the year, all of Israel was commanded to celebrate this moment. And that's what Jesus is doing in Luke 22. He's celebrating Passover with his disciples as they retell this wonderful story of what God did for them at the original Passover and Exodus. This is somewhat not, not abnormal for a Jew. The Passover was so significant and it was a wonderful feast and celebration remembering God's deliverance. And Jesus says to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Why has he earnestly desired it? And what does he mean by suffer? He desires it, for I tell you, I will not eat this Passover meal until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus wants to celebrate this meal because he sees something coming closer to the horizon. He sees the fulfillment of this Passover celebration that Israel has been celebrating for hundreds of years. He sees the fulfillment and he's not gonna be around to eat this meal again next year. A few things are about to happen that will prevent him from eating this again, namely that he is going to become the Passover lamb. He is about to become that innocent victim who was killed to protect those who trust God. Just like the unsuspecting, blemishless male lambs that were all slaughtered on the same night in Egypt. A perfect sacrifice. God the Son who was fully man who would be slaughtered once he is slaughtered, you and I can hide beneath his blood applied to our lives to escape the wrath of God against sin and eventually be brought into his promised land where God himself will live with us in a new Jerusalem temple. You remember that John the Baptist said this the moment that he saw Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the sins of the world Yes, John, that's exactly who that is. He is God's lamb provided for sinful men and women to have their sins taken away. It's as if the father said, you need a spotless lamb 
here, take mine. You as a Christian might be the farthest thing from a Jew who eats lamb on the holidays. But friends, to be a Christian is to trust Jesus by faith and say, you are my Passover lamb. There's a massive theme in scripture about the lamb and sacrifices, which we're only just scratching the surface on. But I want to focus on just a few things that help us make that claim wholeheartedly. Yes, Jesus, you're my Passover lamb. I trust that the sacrifice you made would cause God to first pass over all my sin and every wicked and rebellious thing I've said, thought, not said, not done, and then lead him to claim me as his child. We want to head that direction. And thankfully, scripture really speaks for itself here as, as we'll look at a big chunk of Hebrews 9. So keep your finger in Luke and turn to Hebrews 9 with me. Again, scripture speaks for itself here. We're, we're wondering, how, how is Jesus my Passover lamb? I, I, I'm not a Jew. I wasn't, I'm, I'm getting the Passover kind of third hand. I wasn't with Jesus. So how, how is he my Passover lamb? The context is the heavenly tabernacle, which is where God dwells. Pay attention to how it explains what Jesus has done with his own blood and how it applies to you. Hebrews 9, starting in verse 11. But when Christ, as a high priest of the good things that have come, when Christ appeared, then through the great and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, the one who offered his own blood before God, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, for where a will, a written will, is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself, the book of the law, and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, that is the earthly tabernacle that Moses was just purifying, to be purified with these rites, that is blood. 
but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these ones. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is this picture kind of on the other side of Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension in some ways where he is coming before God in the holiest place and presenting his sacrificed blood. This should do the trick. This should accomplish what you sent me for to cleanse people once for all sacrifice for their sins. It is a window into what went on in heaven after Jesus sacrificed himself. And you know the phrase, the blood of Jesus can seem overused or familiar, but after reading that passage in in Hebrews 9, in light of this passage in Luke 22, I found myself saying over and over again, Jesus, thank you for your blood. Thank you for your blood. Spilled for me, shed for me, drained dry for me, presented to God in heaven because it was whipped and pierced out of you. To do what? To cleanse all those who believe in you, to wash us from the filth of our sin, to satisfy God's wrath that had a laser beam focus right on our chest to give God a reason to pass over and then accept us, to purify us and forgive us of every treasonous sin, every destructive lie, every faithless act, every murderous thought, every sexual sin, every idolatrous pursuit, every attempt to be God, every moment grasping for self-praise, every moment of materialistic greed, every loveless word, every drunken night, every self-righteous attempt to be clean, every theft, every injustice ignored, every willful resistance to your word, all of it, and every stain of my past, present, and future made completely clean, never to condemn again. Oh, Jesus, thank you for your blood. We sang earlier, oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow, no other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus, my Savior. Friends, do you know that you're clean? Do you know that you're forgiven? Do you know that you have been passed over purely because Jesus gave himself for you? Did you know that in the midst of your trial and difficulty, there's one thing that you can always be proclaiming. Jesus, you are my Passover lamb and I love you. You are the source of that saving, righteous, pure blood that covers me. 
That's something that no difficulty will ever be able to take from you. And that no discouraging battle with the residual sin in you can take from you either. The blood of Christ is a permanent protection against the wrath of God. There is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. And that takes the victory away from death and the sting away from sin. Jesus shedding his blood was not a 50-50 chance at accomplishing salvation. In fact, it's the only thing that we can be sure would save us. Okay, back to the Last Supper now. Jesus says in verse 17, take this and divide it among yourselves. This is one of the several toasts of the Passover. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He tells his friends that he won't eat this again until he's done what he came to do and until the kingdom of God comes. So how do we know when this will happen? When is Jesus going to eat this meal again? Well, the book of Revelation has a lot to say about the Passover lamb. Jesus has called the lamb 28 times in Revelation as he's pictured as this lamb who, was, who looks like he's been killed, but he's still, he's still alive. We can trust that from the moment that Jesus left that meal, to this very moment this morning, he has not eaten a meal like the Passover for all this time. We know that he ate with Peter some fish on the shore after his resurrection, but he hasn't celebrated like this Passover meal. But he will once his plan is complete at the marriage supper of who? It's not the marriage supper of Jesus. I find it interesting that not the marriage supper of our Lord, our risen King. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. There will be a banquet where he sits down with us, his bride. He pulls his chair up and eats a celebratory meal where what, what happens at that meal? A story is told about God swooping in to save his people who were enslaved to sin by giving them a spotless Lamb whose blood would be applied over their life so he would pass over them in mercy and deliver them in love. Isn't the story of scripture stunning? This thing that was established kind of as a template, even in Exodus, God was preparing for Jesus. And it's not just Exodus. I'd encourage you to look for the lamb as you read in Leviticus or Hebrews or Genesis, or the Psalms, or Revelation. Look for the Lamb, and you'll see the glory of Christ, who is the embodiment of that sacrificial Lamb. This is the story that we get to tell every Sunday, where we are telling the Passover story in its true fulfillment, in its, in its fullness. We're saying, I've, I've been passed over. God has spared me. He's mercifully taken me out of a place of slavery and brought me into his kingdom, transferred me from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. So Jesus is your Passover lamb. May the Lord bring us slowly to the place where we, we can confidently say that. I, I'm the furthest 
one of the furthest people away from the Jewish Passover, and yet you are my Passover lamb. Point number two, Jesus freely gave you his life and his death. We focused on his sacrifice, but I wanna focus on the giving of that sacrifice to us. The next part of Jesus' Last Supper meal has to do with the familiar words of him saying, take this bread, which is my body, take this cup, etc." Typically on Sundays, we recite Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 11, which he just quotes Jesus saying these things. So there's no doubt that you almost know this by heart by now, but we, we still want to know the significance of why Jesus is doing what he's doing and why Luke is sharing with us. The way that Jesus uses the Passover meal as a launch point to reinterpret the Passover in himself shows us that Jesus wants us to have his life and his death. This isn't just a necessary piece of the puzzle. It's not just I have to do this in order to make salvation work. Because listen to his words, this is my body which is given for you. And this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And we never want to graduate from that simple reality that Jesus has freely offered his life and his death for us. In other words, he gave himself for me. As there's zero arrogance in that statement when we say that. He gave himself for me. I didn't obligate him in any way. He freely and readily and willingly gave me himself. John Calvin says, we must carefully observe that the very power and almost entire force of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper lies in these words, which is given for you, which is shed for you. Both his perfectly righteous life and his atoning death given for me. Can part, if not all of, of this morning, just be spent marveling at the generosity of God? Can we just do that and marvel at the fact that who, who do I know that would give me their life? Not just in passing, but wholly, and would also die for me. He was under no obligation to love his enemies, and yet Jesus spends some of his last moments saying, I'm about to die, and my body and blood and everything that means as a sacrifice for sin is for you here. Remember me in it. Remember me when you eat the bread and drink the cup because I am giving myself over for you so you can have every benefit of salvation in my name. Philip Ryken says this, Jesus died for you as much as he died for them and he loves you as much as he loves them. It is to you that the bread is given and to you that the cup is poured because it was for you that his body was broken and for you that his blood was shed. There's just massive personal significance in that for us. He's not just saying this to his 12 closest friends. He's saying it to the world, whoever would take him. The answer to the question, why did Jesus do this, is pretty simple because it's right, right here in, in Luke 22. He gave us his life and his death to begin a new relationship and form a new covenant with us. And by the way, he planned for this new relationship all along. Jeremiah prophesied about it in Jeremiah 31 and told of a covenant, which is just this 
relationship that is established formally by God between him and his people that would involve sins forgiven and the law of God being written not on tablets or books, but on the hearts of those whom God would be joined in relationship to. Again, Hebrews is so helpful in explaining all of this. Just go read Hebrews this week and see if it, see if it looks a little bit different to you after talking about these things. See if, see if it explains and kind of spells out a little bit more of what we've been talking about this morning. Hebrews 10, 11 through 18, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law, laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And friends, I just want to throw in there, if, if you feel like there's this burden of making payment, I need to, need to give more, I need to offer more, I need to surrender myself more in a way to continue to kind of make monthly payments, so to speak, there's no longer any offering for sin. This is life in the new covenant. No sin held against us, no condemnation, no offering or sacrifice necessary for sin anymore because Jesus really has paid it all. He's paid every bit of it. The blood of Jesus' new covenant is, like I said earlier about Israel's Passover, an identity forming moment for us as God's new people. This is why a church exists in Bellbrook, Ohio. It's why we who were strangers are now brothers and sisters in God's family. Think about that. That wouldn't, would not exist were it not for the blood of Christ and him choosing long before Jesus came around to establish a new relationship with us. It's why we can rally under the banner of Christ together. We are people of the new covenant. And side note, we want to act and live and love one another as people of this new wonderful covenant. We know from Galatians that the old covenant under Moses wasn't useless. It was a guardian or a school teacher until Jesus came. It instructed, it showed the pervasiveness of sin. But once Jesus came, he did away with the need for endless sacrifices as he is also the new king of this new covenant where there's freedom to know him, to grow in obeying him without crushing burdens and to find true eternal forgiveness. Do you want that? If you've already trusted in Christ, do you find yourself satisfied and rejoicing in the fact that you know God personally, that, you've, that you are at peace with him because Jesus reconciled you to him, that your sins are totally forgiven? If not, that's okay. This morning is a chance to be further satisfied in those things. And as we'll talk about in, the moment, in, in a moment, the Lord's Supper is a unique opportunity to help and growing in that satisfaction every Sunday. Jesus freely gave you his life and his death. And just, even just reading that catches me off guard. He freely gave you his life and his death. 
You know what I love about how Paul describes Jesus a few times in Galatians? Listen to this. This is how he describes him in Galatians 2.20. A lot of you know these, these familiar verses. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, friends, we want to be able to say that very thing with a genuine heart. Jesus is the one who loved me and he gave himself for me. That leads us to our third point, which is less about the Last Supper and more about the Lord's Supper. Consider this point just kind of the main application of what we've been talking about this morning. And it's this, take the Lord's Supper for all it's worth. Take the Lord's Supper for all it's worth. Uh, by show of hands, how many of you have received teaching on the Lord's Supper on a Sunday morning? More than I thought. I hoped you would say that because we teach a little bit on it every single Sunday, just a, just a little bit. But I'm glad that you have because there's a, there's a reality in which the Lord's Supper can be some, some of the most least talked about sort of things, kind of this understood secret handshake that we all do, that everybody knows what to do. So we're just going to take a, a, a little bit just to, to say, how do we take the Lord's Supper for all it's worth? And I hope that even just after listening to Hebrews, for example, and talking about our Passover lamb, that you can see how those things might enrich your experience of the Lord's Supper on Sunday mornings. Some of us have seen the table of the Lord's Supper as a fearful thing or a painful time of self-examination and reflection where all, all your dirt comes to the surface and you feel unworthy to come before Christ. Some of you have known it as something that happens once in a blue moon and it doesn't have a ton of meaning. So let's clear the fog by starting on this foot together. The Lord's Supper is an event in the life of our church where we take the gospel so seriously that we participate with sobriety and intense joy, intense joy. How do we get to that point? By seeing that Jesus readily gave his own body and the blood in his veins for you. That's, that's the starting point. Because if you don't see the supper as something that he has provided for you to help remember and to feed your soul, it will lose all significance. So we're back to square one there. So with that in mind, I just have a, a few ways to help us take the Lord's Supper for all its richness so that this is no longer a stale or meaningless time for us. I just have five, I think. Let the Lord's Supper proclaim the gospel to you. Number one, let the Lord's Supper proclaim the gospel to you. The Lord's Supper isn't a person, nor does it have a voice, but I trust that you know what I mean when I say Use this time that is pointing you straight to Jesus to be a time where you reflect on the best news in the world about Christ and about what is true for you as a redeemed sinner. The Holy Spirit is, is very active in this process. J.C. Ryle says, the two elements of the bread and the wine were intended to preach Christ crucified as our substitute. They were to be a visible sermon appealing to the believer's senses and teaching the old foundation truth of the gospel that Christ's death on the cross is the life of man's soul. 
Yes, faith is believing what we do not see, but Jesus in his kindness knew that that would be difficult. So he gave us physical symbols of his body and blood to point us to that truth that will forever make us marvel at and worship him for his love. So let your heart be refreshed by realizing that in this meal. Speaking of refreshment, another way to take the Lord's Supper for all it's worth is come hungry, leave satisfied. Come hungry. That, that, I was surprised at how that is, that is an intentional step, to come hungry. Though we feel it, though we, I'm, I, need, I need you, Lord. But like coming to the Lord's Supper, actively saying, I want my soul to be fed and then to leave satisfied. We, we call this a meal, not because we walk away stuffed physically, but because this is where our dry, thirsty, weary, depressed, half-hearted souls are fed with real spiritual food. I know that's hard. It's hard to picture being spiritually fed to the point of feeling nourished. And yet, the fact that we have this time set aside every Sunday where we know we will, we will experience and hear and taste and touch the realities of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if, if we're hungry, we will be satisfied by that. So come to the Lord's Supper expecting to be satisfied in some way, spiritually so. The third is know what you're participating in. We have to take Paul's warning seriously that there is a way to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, which is to take it without any consideration of your sin or without any readiness to repent and come to Christ. The issue with the Corinthians was there was this huge discrepancy between the rich and the poor. The rich were eating to their heart's content and the poor were going hungry at this meal that they had before they celebrated the Lord's Supper. And so Paul was saying, you're not even paying attention to the, the division that's happening. How can you be proclaiming Christ and him crucified if there's all this animosity? So he was calling them to, to consider their own sin. Consider if they're unrepentant. Consider any anything that might be between them. But that's not to say that sinners can't come to the Lord's Supper. That's exactly where Jesus wants sinners to be. It's those who take the Lord's Supper flippantly, for lack of a better term. And that doesn't mean intensely serious to the point of inflicting damage to yourself because we want the joy. And yet, we have to be mindful of what it really cost to cleanse us from our sins. Paul also says this, the cup of blessing that we bless is, not a particip- is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So know what you're participating in. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're happily saying, I'm unified to that one, that one that lived and died and rose again. I am, I am his, I am with him. His death and life are mine, which means I died and now I live again with him. This, this time is a, a true means of grace to stoke the flame of your faith, to confess once again, this is true. Know what you're participating in. Fourth, acknowledge that you are a part of the whole. 
This is a little bit more difficult because it's easy to see this Sunday as a collection of individuals, which we are. Individual people who have joined together, covenant together even as members of this church. But we are also one body. We are one covenant people with God. And we do the Lord's Supper together for a reason. It's that we're all centering ourselves around one thing. When we gather together, we are telling each other, we're in this gospel thing together. We all agree on this foundational truth that Christ died to save sinners like us, and we wanna be a part of proclaiming that together. I, I am deeply encouraged as, we, as I kind of watch people come up, go back down to their seats, and it's just like, I, you know what this is all about. And I'm so glad to know you and be a part of this body with you. So acknowledge that you're a part of the whole. We are happily saying that we are in this together. The last one, maybe the most important one, rejoice. Simple as that, rejoice. There's this mixture. First, it's this Jesus had to die for my sin. And this, it, it required death, whether his death or our death. And that's sobering. But what a relief and what a joy to know that my debt has already been paid. My life purchased, my soul resurrected, my future fixed in heaven, and my heart is just left rejoicing because Jesus hung on a cross for me. He gave himself for me. It's supposed to leave us rejoicing, not wallowing. That's not to say we'll always feel great at the Lord's Supper, but it is to say give yourself a shot at having your eyes lifted up to see what hope and joy there is to be had for those who are in Christ Jesus. Rejoice.